Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Most economists agree that the best way to reduce carbon dioxide emissions that cause global warming is by implementing a carbon tax and making it more expensive to buy products and services with a high carbon content. Yet by putting a price on carbon, countries may drive up costs for domestic businesses, putting them at a competitive disadvantage to foreign competitors from countries where no carbon price exists. On today's podcast, we'll be looking at the most commonly proposed solution to protect American businesses from the competitive impacts of a carbon tax. The solution, known as a border adjustment, would ensure that American and imported goods are subject to the same carbon price. The tool seems simple enough, and in fact, every carbon tax proposal in Congress this year features a border adjustment. Yet research suggests that the economic protections promised by border adjustments may not be as great as commonly assumed. Here to talk about border adjustments are David Weisbach, a professor of law at the University of Chicago, and Sam Cordham, an economist at Yale University. The two have focused on the role of taxation in addressing climate change. David and Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. David, there are more than half a dozen carbon tax bills now making the rounds in Congress. All the bills include border adjustments. What are border adjustments and what problems are they intended to address? Well, to understand border adjustments, it's helpful to back up just a bit to explain how uh, the underlying carbon tax is imposed and then show how border adjustments change the carbon tax. So recall that carbon emissions um, come mostly from burning fossil fuel and carbon taxes are designed to address fossil fuels, petroleum, coal, and natural gas. The simplest way to tax fossil fuels is just to tax them when they come out of the ground or somewhere close to that, such as when they're processed. So you can think of this as a tax, if you will, on, on domestic extraction. And many carbon tax proposals do exactly that. Um, other proposals and many existing cap and trade systems instead impose a tax when the fossil fuels are burned, so on the, their use in production. Um, in either case, uh, fossil fuels or goods that produced abroad and imported to the U.S. would not bear a tax, and fossil fuels extracted and goods produced here and exported would bear a tax. And we can think of border adjustments as kind of reversing that. Right. There are taxes on the carbon content of imports, whether it's fossil fuels or goods. And so when a good is imported, we add the tax. And that means all imports bear the same kind of tax as goods produced here or fossil fuels that are extracted here. Border adjustments also include a rebate of prior taxes paid on exports. So that means if fossil fuels are extracted here or goods are produced here, they have the tax removed when they're exported, which means when they're sold abroad, they don't bear a tax unless the recipient country happens to impose one. And if you think this through, what this means is border adjustments have the effect of shifting the tax from extraction or production onto domestic consumption. I just wanted to point out here that the, the border adjustments really apply when one country has a carbon tax and the countries that it trades with don't. Uh, yeah, you can do them when both have uh, taxes, in, in which case there'd be kind of bilateral border adjustments. For example, suppose we had a border adjustments with Canada. We would remove the tax when we export a good to Canada, and then Canada would impose a tax uh, uh, 
on its import of that same good. So you can do it either bilaterally or you can do it with a country that doesn't have a, a carbon tax at all. And the motivation tends to be uh, in the case where countries don't have carbon taxes. But, but either way, they, what they do is they shift the tax from production or extraction on, onto domestic consumption, right? Because all goods that are bought by US consumers would bear the tax regardless of whether they're produced here or produced abroad. And all goods that are produced here, goods that are produced here only bear the tax if they happen to be consumed here. If they're exported, the tax is removed. So you've shifted the tax off of domestic extraction and production and onto domestic consumption. And what that's designed to do is remove the incentive to shift extraction or production abroad, something known as leakage. And when you say this is shifted onto consumers with a border adjustment, consumers would not have the option, from my understanding, to say purchase goods uh, produced in a foreign country that may not be subject to a carbon price, and then the consumer avoids that carbon price in that way. The the border adjustment again shifts this onto consumers because consumers no longer have a, a way to escape that. Is that correct? Right, domestic consumers. If they went to the foreign country and consumed there, obviously they wouldn't bear the tax. But domestic consumers would always bear the tax because it wouldn't matter who produced the good, domestic producers or foreign producers, either way, the goods they buy would, would bear the tax. Now, what goods would be subject to a border adjustment? So in, in theory, all goods, uh, but in practice, actually, most proposals only impose a border adjustment on small, a small fraction of goods, which are goods that have a high energy content and that are exposed to trade, such as steel, aluminum, chemical, paper, cement, and maybe a few others, and of course, fossil fuels themselves. In practice, they tend to be relatively narrow, but in, in theory, it's everything. Now, in the United States, we don't have a carbon tax at this point. Uh, where have border adjustments been tried elsewhere? Uh, really, not very many places. Uh, I mean, a few very minor exceptions out there. Uh, there are serious concerns about whether you can implement them and whether they're illegal. And as a result, most places that have carbon taxes or carbon prices, such as cap and trade systems, don't do that. For example, the EU cap and trade system does not generally have a border adjustment. And instead, most countries try and protect vulnerable industries in uh, simpler ways. Now, we're going to talk about that legality issue uh, in a few moments. But before we go on to that, I want to bring up uh, the fact that several years ago, you and Sam published uh, research that concluded a bit counterintuitively that border adjustments may not provide the economic protection they're assumed to offer. You just talked about that a little bit. Can you take that a little bit further for me? What exactly does that mean? So the basic question we wanted to ask is whether border adjustments make the American people overall better off, and not just the industries that are complaining about the carbon tax, but really everybody. And uh, leaving aside the difficulties of implementing border adjustments, which we'll come back to, and leaving aside the question of whether they're legal, which we'll also come back to, we found that they probably don't help U.S. consumers. And the question is, why not? So go back to thinking about border adjustments as shifting the tax from U.S. production or extraction to U.S. consumption, right? If the tax were on U.S. production, let's say, so we didn't have border adjustments, then people all over the world who buy goods made in the U.S. will bear the tax no matter where they live. And that means that some foreign people will buy U.S. produced goods and bear some of that tax, right? And U.S. consumers 
would not bear any carbon tax to the extent that they buy foreign goods. But this is without border adjustments. Now compare that to a world with border adjustments. Now what's changed? Now all U.S. consumers bear the tax no matter what they buy, and only U.S. consumers bear the tax. So what the border adjustment has done effectively is shift the tax off of foreign consumers and put it on U.S. consumers. Right? Foreign consumers are really happy about this. They no longer have to bear any tax to the extent they were buying U.S. produced goods. And U.S. consumers, well, not so much, right? Now they face a tax on everything they buy instead of a tax on only part of what they buy. Right. Now, that, of course, might be offset by possible benefits of having certain types of production occur domestically. Right? Border adjustments might prevent shifting of highly mobile energy intensive industries abroad. And if you believe this is bad, it might not be. But if, if you believe it's bad, then that effect might offset the benefits, uh, I'm sorry, the cost of border adjustments to U.S. consumers. But overall, we think that it tends to be the case that border adjustments are probably uh, bad for U.S. consumers. So, Sam, we haven't forgotten about you here. I was wondering <laughs> if you could could tell us about the model that you used uh, in the research, uh, the model that you used to understand the outcomes uh, from a border adjustment, and what were the key assumptions that were put into that model? Okay, well, like many economic models, it's a very simplified story that we tried to capture in a, in a formal way through the model so that we could focus on the, the key issues. So. Uh, one of the things that's simplified is we think of a world with just two countries, the country that's imposing the tax and then the other country that's just carrying on with uh, business as usual. Um, another uh, uh, feature of the model is that there are these two layers of trade. There's trade, there's energy being extracted in each of these countries, the taxing country and the other country, that's traded. Then there's goods being manufactured in each country and those are being traded and then ultimately consumers consume those goods and so it does even though it's simplified it does capture the basic issues that we've been talking about here of the the different layers of of carbon moving through the world economy um then within and i should say one other key assumption that maybe uh, will be uh, sometimes surprises people who are non-economists is it's, it is a bit more of a long run model in the sense that unemployment per se is not a feature of the model. People, there's always something for people to be employed doing. They can produce services, they can produce energy, they can produce manufactured goods. So that um, arguments about carbon taxes based on employment are not something we can speak to in this analysis. So that's both a shortcoming and a, and a benefit. It lets us focus on uh, maybe the more long run features. Let, let me so jump within, in on that point, if I may, yeah. just for a moment. From, from reading the paper, what I understood was that there may be short term employment impacts as certain industries um, can no longer compete because of the high level of carbon content in their products and services. But over time, I think from what I understood, the assumption is that many of those jobs will move to lower carbon areas. and in the longer term, it'll be a net zero for employment. Is, is that generally what, what you've assumed here? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so we have this sort of, we built in a kind of mobility of labor to the areas where the jobs are. 
Um, and so within that setting, we can think about taxing carbon at these different levels at the, at the wellhead, as David was describing, or we can think of it being taxed at the level of uh, production, or we can think of it being pushed all the way down to consumption, and we can compare uh, the outcomes from taxing at these different uh, levels. Um, and an important thing to keep in mind when we make that comparison, to make that comparison fair, you need to always hold fix the global emissions of carbon that are achieved with the policy. So that needs to be held fixed because that's all that matters in the end. When you have a carbon policy, you, you shouldn't really care about anything else other than the total global emissions in terms of the effectiveness of the policy. So we hold that fixed and then say, you know, what policy would be able to uh, get us that outcome at the least cost to the economy? And, and as David said, a, a big part of that is the least cost to the, to the uh, U.S. consumers. So, Sam, what did the model show the impacts to be uh, on industry in the country with the carbon tax? Yeah, so start with an extraction tax. Suppose you did nothing. You just tax at the wellhead and there's no border adjustments whatsoever. Well, then what you're going to do is reduce the size of your energy sector and more of your you're going to export less energy or start importing more energy than before so that's one layer now you could have border adjustments on the energy so for example you could have a tax on the imported energy uh, and a rebate of the tax when when the uh, energy is exported and so in that case you've moved uh, the tax up to the level of producers and in that case, what you're going to find is that you reduce the size of your goods producing sector and you start to export less goods and import more goods. Uh, at that point, your your energy sector is is kind of left in the same situation as without a tax, but you you cause these shifts in the in the production sector of the economy. And so finally, you could have the other layer of board adjustments on the goods, in other words, a tax on the energy content of the imported goods and a removal of that tax when those goods are exported. And then you move it all the way up to the consumer uh, uh, paying the tax. And even though that is now not having any effects on uh, the global production of goods or global production of energy in terms of the taxing country versus the other country, as David pointed out, it's not necessarily, that may look like a good thing, but that doesn't necessarily make um, U.S. consumers better off. And in fact, uh, one of our main points is, is that's unlikely to be the optimal policy. That, the, in other words, having the full border adjustments that push the tax all the way up to the consumer is typically uh, not the best policy, and in fact, can be can be the worst among those three that we just discussed. Th that's a pretty bleak outlook for it. So, were there uh, any notable benefits to the home country, the country with the carbon tax? Well, just a second. So, let me step back because we would not be we would there could be huge benefits in having a carbon tax, 
it's really an issue of whether you should leave it on the extraction sector, the energy sector, or push it downstream either to the production sector or to the consumers. And so our, when you say it's a, a, a kind of glum scenario, I, I guess I don't agree. It's just saying, let's be smart about the way the taxing is done and we shouldn't have a presumption that the best thing is to always push it down to the level of the uh, U.S. consumers. Now, David, another point that the two of you make is that one of the issues, uh, major issues with border adjustments as well, is that they imply large administrative costs. As we've spoken already, th these are complex issues, right? And there's a lot of different ways that uh, a border adjustment can be implemented. There are many different ways and levels at which a carbon tax can be implemented. <laughs> Sorry. Looks like we got an additional guest on the show today. Um, <laughs> My dog, Callie. Is she giving you all the answers? She's, is she, she, the, the, she the brain behind the whole system? She does the modeling. <laughs> she does the modeling, great. Um, so so, so um, tell us about the administrative costs. How great are they? And are they greater than the actual economic, any, any benefits that may come? Yeah, let me just back up, though, to address the point that Sam was just making, whether there's any benefits to border adjustments, which is the benefits that are claimed, and they may be true, is that it avoids the shifting of, say, our fossil fuel extraction sector abroad or shifting of heavy industry abroad. Right, that's the claim. And the question is, how big is that benefit and whether we can quantify it? Uh, to some extent, that disruption is going to occur anyway. Right. Carbon, industry, carbon intensive industries are going to have to retool in the long run. Right. So to the extent we think that border adjustments are really preventing those industries from shifting out of the U.S., it's not really clear how much in the long run you're going to stop those industries from having to retool anyway. Right. It's, it's in some ways a, a rear guard action. And so, again, it's not clear that consumers are better off. It's probably worse off with border adjustments. And it's not clear that border adjustments by trying to continue to protect these industries from retooling are really doing something that's good for the U.S. in the long run. Anyway, we don't model that, but the main thing that people argue about is, gosh, these heavy industries are going to be hurt. They're going to have to shift to lower carbon production methods, and they're going to have to do that anyway in the long run. But let me turn to the um, administrative costs. And this, I think, is, is really the key which is even if you're on the fence regarding the economics, you might think that the cost to U.S. consumers is worth it in order to protect certain heavy industry that is still occurring here. If, even if you thought that, the real problem with border adjustments is how do you actually implement them? And implementing them on any kind of comprehensive basis, I think, would be almost impossible. The cost would be overwhelming. So imagine that you're a customs officer, you're sitting in a port in Los Angeles and a cargo ship shows up and it's loaded with automobiles. Right? Your job, you've got to figure out what the emissions are from the production of each type of car that's on the ship. And remember those cars might've been each produced in six different countries using different methodologies, different energy technologies, Different, different fuel sources and so forth. And when you're talking about emissions, you're not talking about emissions out of the tailpipe, you're talking about emissions that were involved in the actual manufacture of those, those, those cars. Yes, precisely. So you've got steel in a car, and when you made that steel in, say, South Korea, there were emissions associated with that. 
right? And what a comprehensive border adjustment would do would be to impose a tax on all the emissions used in, uh, that came from producing that car, just as if the car were produced here. But if we had a carbon tax here, then any use of fossil fuels in producing that car, including making the steel, would bear a tax. And so when we import that car, we have to impose the same tax as if it were produced here. There's simply no way that you can do that with the number of goods and the number of types of goods, the complex production process we see around the world. There's no way that we can impose any reasonably accurate border adjustments on most of the goods that are coming into the US. Right? And that's the reason why most border adjustments are limited to simple raw materials such as steel or chemicals. But even then, the, the problem may be insurmountable. There are thousands of different types of imported chemicals. Each one of those chemicals might be imported from different places, made using different production technologies and different energy sources. Right? At best, the border adjustment proposals we have out there are extremely crude and extremely inaccurate. There's simply no way to, to make them accurate. And then when they're inaccurate and crude, then you introduce all kinds of problems because they're not creating the right kinds of incentives that you want, right? That is the imaginary border adjustments where we tax foreign goods the same way we tax US goods is simply not something that anyone thinks we can actually do. So David, given all these complexities uh, and also the fact that, again, we have more than a half dozen carbon fee proposals in Congress right now, all of which include uh, border adjustments, it, the bottom line, are, are, is support for border adjustments justified? Well, I don't think so. I, th I think the supporters of border adjustments are the affected industries. Right? They're the loudest voices out there, and they have an easy time making their views known in Washington. Right? But nobody is out there speaking for consumers or for the American public generally. Right? Politicians naturally react to the loudest voices that they hear, to the industries that have access to them. They can't dismiss industry voices altogether, right? They need to put together a coalition to pass a tax, and industries may have the power to block uh, taxes altogether. Right? But we should view the calls for border adjustments by industry as just, a, as, as just that. And what politicians need to do is figure out a way of putting together a coalition of satisfying those industries so the carbon taxes aren't blocked however they need to. But we shouldn't view border adjustments as justified on an economic basis. Sam, are there better alternatives to border adjustments? I think you all mentioned uh, some alternatives earlier on. Yeah, so I, I go back to this is sort of the question that David and I are asking right now in the research we're doing. And um, I might be repeating a bit, but the first alternative would just be to impose a carbon tax at the level of uh, extraction of fossil fuels and just stop there. Now, that's certainly a policy that doesn't involve border adjustments, and it also doesn't uh, affect the price that U.S. producers of goods are facing. But that may not be the optimal thing either. What we're tending to find is sort of a mix of uh, partial border adjustments is what is the best thing. So, for example, uh, David mentioned the, the difficulties of imposing border adjustments, but 
that doesn't imply that doesn't apply uh, really to that first layer of the actual energy exports and energy imports. So we can do that pretty easily, but we may not want to do that one for one with whatever our carbon tax is. If we don't do it one for one, then we leave a bit of the tax burden on the energy sector, and we're finding that to be typically a good thing to do. Then the other, if you go uh, up, uh, downstream to the, the border adjustment for the goods sector, um, when you're talking about exports, you're uh, allowing the goods producers to to get rebated on the on the tax on the energy taxes they paid in the production of goods, but you might want to do that a little more um, in a smarter way because, in a sense, that the, they're facing that carbon tax is a good thing because that. Uh, gets them to produce the exported goods in a more energy efficient way. That's what you sort of, that's kind of the beauty of a carbon tax. Everybody's trying to figure out how to avoid it. That's why, you know, by the, the techniques of production that they adopt. And so you want to leave that incentive there, but you may be able to uh, support your exporters who are getting priced out of the market through other subsidies based on the unit, the number of units they export rather than the carbon content of what they're exporting. And that way you retain the incentives to produce goods in an energy efficient way, yet uh, protect uh, some of those producers uh, from getting priced out of the market due to your carbon tax policy. So those are some of the things that we're um, finding as we try and explore um, better alternatives to just a simple border adjustment that's uh, complete. David, are we seeing any any of these alternatives in the current crop of uh, carbon fee proposals in Congress or, or elsewhere? Well, I think what you saw in the EU with their cap and trade system was something even simpler than what Sam was suggesting, which is they just uh, subsidize the at-risk industries by having uh, giving them free permits or something like that. So they, they, they have to pass this cap and trade system. Industries are worried about what they're going to do. And so they just basically get their money, right? We saw that in the Waxman-Markey proposal or, or bill, which made it through the House uh, several years ago, which is they basically subsidized at-risk industries. So something very, very simple. Doesn't that uh, take away some of the incentive, though, to reduce carbon emissions? Uh, it depends on how you do it, uh, but it, it might. Right? If you simply gave them money, then it wouldn't because they'd still have to bear the tax on any goods they produce. They'd still have an incentive to, to produce clean goods, even though they now have just extra money. If you lower the tax rate on them or lower the permit requirements in the cap and trade system, then it would have that diluting effect. Got it. Now, David, you touched briefly earlier on the question of whether border adjustments are actually legal under uh, World Trade Organization rules. And the World Trade Organization generally seeks to eliminate barriers to free trade. So bottom line, would border adjustments be legal under the WTO? Oh, I don't think we know the bottom line. No one's ever really done this before. The WTO has never really ruled on this. And so there's an enormous question as to whether they're legal or not. And no one really knows. And the legal analysis then relies on analogies to other cases, which don't look very much like the current proposals for border adjustments. And so there's enormous legal uncertainty. And one reason why is because we know that these types of 
inbound tariffs and, and uh, outbound subsidies can be used to block trade, right, or to promote your domestic industries. And so distinguishing genuine environmentally motivated border adjustments from proposals to simply protect your domestic industries is very, very difficult. And that means that the WTO will face a difficult question when this is eventually considered. And so the, the bottom line on the legal issue is there's a lot of risk that they're illegal under the WTO, but no one really knows. Sam, let me ask you a final question here. Under the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, all countries are supposed to cut their carbon emissions. Given that, is a border adjustment even relevant or as relevant as it once may have been? Yeah, so let me say, answer that in theory and then in practice. So the vision people had, I think, is that this emission, the global emissions, it's a global externality. We don't really, doesn't matter if the U.S. produces the emissions or China produces the emissions. It's the sum of the two that matters. And so that's the, the problem that needs to be solved. And if every country could get together, the optimal thing would be to have a common tax rate and we'd be done and we could forget about uh we could forget about border adjustments and in fact that that common rate could be taxed at the wellhead and then there could be some transfers of the um the tax revenue to make it fair um we wouldn't need border adjustments so that's kind of the beauty of it you know david described all the difficulties of implementing them you'd do away with that Okay, now in practice, there are two issues that come up. One is that the Paris Agreement doesn't really have teeth, so we're still in the world where some countries are gonna impose much stronger policies than other countries, and many countries will probably have no policy whatsoever. So that's one issue. And then the second one is what uh, David touched on earlier, which is even if everybody has a policy, but they're kind of different, you may need border adjustments to move between one country that's taxing at the wellhead and one country that's taxing when the uh, carbon fuels are, are combusted and so on. But I feel like that's more of a, a technical issue. And I think the big picture is that if we could somehow all countries get together, impose a common policy, that's just by far the, 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 the best way to solve the issue of climate change. And we're, what we've been talking about today is the second best situations where only some countries have a policy and then what are you gonna do about it to make that policy not be undercut by the other country? And that's where border adjustments come in. I could add one thing to that, which is the Paris Agreement contemplates different uh, emissions reductions commitments by different countries, which means different implicit carbon prices. And the question is, imagine we're with three countries, United States, say, Canada, and China, and they all have different carbon prices. One might be zero, one might be $25 a ton, and one might be $50 a ton. And then the question is, how do you think about border adjustments in that kind of world? Do we have border adjustments for the $50 country only with the zero country or with the $25 country? And how do you coordinate it among multiple different countries when they have different carbon prices? And the implementation problems then start to get exponentially more difficult. David and Sam, thanks for talking. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us.
Today's guests have been David Weisbach of the University of Chicago Law School and Sam Cordham of the Yale University Department of Economics. Keep up to date with Energy Policy Now by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more energy and environmental policy news, blogs, and research, visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.